Ryan Stanton here with ASAP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Jim Williams. You've heard him on the podcast before, a lot of times talking about uh, no X, no X, and a little bit of everything from that standpoint. But today, uh, we're bringing him in here because we have a topic that we think is actually very important for many people out there, especially all, all of us who have young children, uh, but also families within your communities. And that is COVID-19 and the return to in-person education in school. I know most uh, folks are in process of that happening right now, if they haven't um, for quite a while. But we want to chat about uh, some of those considerations, some of those things. And um, Jim has uh, got some 411 on all that stuff. So, uh, Dr. Williams, thanks for joining us once again here on the front line. Yeah, thanks very much, Ryan. It's great to be here and great seeing you again. Um, I think it's a neat topic because it touches most of us, whether it's uh, our own family and kids or we're being asked about it by our patients in the emergency department. And uh, as you and I were talking last night, we thought, hey, let's talk about getting back to school um, because it really has been an issue. Um, and I know early on in this pandemic, when things shut down, we were all concerned about um, what's it going to do not only for the kids' education, but what it's going to do to their mental health. And then all the repercussions as well for the parents who have to work. What do they do with the kids? Childcare. How do we deal with all this? And so um, I think now it might be a good time to just sort of have a reflection that we're one year out and say, you know, where were we and where are we right now and where can we go moving forward? Yeah, it's been very interesting um, with the almost exactly a year since a um, decent number of cases across the country started showing up. Um, and, you know, now we're here, uh, March of 2021 and you know, we're, we're, we still, we see the light at the end of the tunnel now, um, at least, you know, for a significant drop off with the availability of vaccines and such. Um, what are some of the big factors, considerations, uh, that you've seen? Well, actually let's, let's talk about first that toll that is on the families and, um, on the families and on the students and those that may be disproportionately impacted, uh, by this time away from school that this happened over the last year? Well, it is a huge toll, and, and I'm by no means an expert in that, but I can witness it firsthand and give you some anecdotal experience of just what's happened. It's It takes certainly a medical toll, I think, because of keeping the kids away from their peers. There's um, potentially the mental health problem that they have of not um, being able to be with their peers, and it really impairs their development. If it's a week, that may be one thing. But now we're talking about a year out away from their peers, and it's certainly age dependent. And so uh, as a backdrop, I'm also on our school's health committee, and it's a pre-K through um, high school. And we have a, a health committee that effectively could be its own hospital. We have uh, experts from every field, um, from Hopkins and other uh, major universities. And we look at you know, what the problem with the kids um, may be, particularly with their mental health and their development. And it's, it's really acute, I think, in the grade school kids, um, but it also affects their parents also because they have to stay home from work. Um, they're trying to, even what was beforehand a difficult work-life balance now is really potentially insurmountable. And then you have the economic burdens as well. And so the impetus on us was really to look at our mission statement and say, how do we look, how do we take care of our kids? It's really mind, body, spirit. And that was sort of our beacon for how we sort of address some of these issues for the kids. Look at their mind, look at their body, look at their spirit. And it's all gonna be science driven. And um, we're really gonna have some logistical um, 
guardrails in place so we can get things uh, going back to where they were before. My kids returned to school. They were off for a little bit with the state mandate, and there was some pushback and forth with the governor. Um, and then they returned back pretty consistently in the fall. Um, and there was some – the nice thing that the school did is they had a committee much like one you're, that you're talking about with physicians involved and, you know, some uh, some parents that, that were willing to be on there and support it. What we found is that the nice thing was the the cohorting of the students, so cohorting classes to where if there was a two-week break because of a, a child coming in having to be quarantined, it was just that class that had to be quarantined and not, you know, the entire school, shutting down the entire school. And so each of my children, I've got two daughters, each one ended up having actually one two-week window in the fall, and both have had one two-week window here in the spring. Um, and it's been, it's been... You know, it's been very interesting, but it's been you, – you see that value. But then in the fall – actually, last year in the spring and fall, you know, we're seeing, you know, potential disparities with whether it is income disparities, racial disparities, whatever it may be that are exacerbated by, you know, doing virtual learning at home. Do you have a computer? Do you have consistent Wi-Fi? Do you have parents or guardians that – um, that are willing to, that are going to make you stick with school. Because I know that, you know, with my kids both being, making great grades and doing the, neither of them really wanted to be on school. And I mean, they, they would find things you'd go up there and they'd be on the side trying to play a game on a, another screen or whatnot. Like this is, you know, and, and we were there to kind of drive them and refocus them. But, you know, so often you've got other kids that whatever reason, whether not able to contact it, families that can't assist with homework or with schoolwork, um, is, isn't going to make them sit there on class and do the things that they need to do. Even our teachers, teachers were saying that, you know, a lot of the kids aren't just doing the work at all, um, and getting that stuff in. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the things, you know, uh, many things of being in-person school is kind of that standardization, the standardization, the environment, being able to hold almost everybody relatively accountable um, from that, uh, to get their work done, to pay attention, to be engaged uh, with the class as best as possible. Then, of course, you mentioned some of the really important aspects of pediatrics, which is that development of the social channels and the way of communicating with other people from outside the household and and things of that nature. Um, So what are some of the big challenges, the hurdles, when you're looking at getting back, um, whether it's families, whether it's um, separation distancing, whether it's teachers, whether individually or union-based, what are some of the challenges you faced with the with the plan of returning back to the classroom? Yeah, well, going back to look at uh, what we've done is sort of highlights the challenges. And, and fortunately, we've had some successes, I think, getting over these challenges. And, and you're right, there may be some disparities, even if you look at more broadly public versus private schools, um, perhaps big difference in what the resources are available. Certainly the governments were challenged in getting funding because they're directed towards the COVID, but everything else in the infrastructure that was already challenged financially uh, for, for budget purposes really was now having catastrophic problems. So, you know, some of the challenges we faced were um, every, anything from how do we sanitize the um, schools? How do we uh, look at the filtration systems? How do we look at airflow? How do we make sure everybody has PPE? Um, how do we make sure that we're able to um, do adequate screening for patients. How do, how do we do that? Whether it's a um, handwritten thing, do we temperature check? Well, we started that initially, but then we moved to a online platform. So every morning kids have a text sent to them so that they can say if they're 
symptomatic or not. And so that that's really important knowing the history because I think we've learned now a little bit about the transmission. We don't have to focus so much on wiping down everything with Lysol and bleach, but knowing that it's really primarily airborne and, and masking, I think is a huge benefit that we can use those successes and understanding uh, really what's worked now, and that's gonna help us move forward. So some of the things moving forward to say, how do we maintain that bubble? And I think that's a cool thing. Uh, there was a really great article this morning, in fact, in the Wall Street Journal, and it talks about exactly this, how do you maintain that bubble? And primarily it talks about um, masking and the contract tracing and the screening primarily just by asking questions, you know, do you, are you able to get into your business now, Ryan, because you have chills from your vaccine, um, but also the, the vaccination is going to be a huge thing. And that was important because, you know, ironically, the teachers had a lot of pushback of going back to school because they were worried about the kids being super spreaders, asymptomatic super spreaders. So now that we've are getting into that, I think at our school in particular, all the teachers have been vaccinated. Now we're able to say, can we get the kids back? One of the interesting challenges we're having now has been the simple physical plant limitations of size. It's impossible to have grade school and high school kids back together and still maintain a social distance of six feet. So knowing all the other stuff we do, are we able to maybe cut down on that six feet as long as everybody's masking and we maintain all these other uh, guardrails to keep the bubble? And I think that's something that we're really looking at. And, you know, you ask yourself then, well, where did the six feet come from? Well, because it looked at how the uh, virus is spreading, but that's without a mask. And that's also, um, and now I refer readers and, and listeners of, um, of your podcast to the Wall Street Journal this morning, because it has a really nice video in there. And it just shows, you know, when you have the mask, you can minimize that six feet to perhaps, perhaps three feet. And so then you can really get the kids back together um, and do so safely. And, and that's really our guiding principle. Uh, we want to do it safely. With the students in, in play uh, coming back in, we do know that um, you know, young folks, they tend to have, um, they, don't, they don't tend to have a significant disease. You know, we, we, we hear the stories about the uh, multi-organ inflammatory syndrome and such, but they still, for the most part, they have relatively mild disease. Their risk of death and complication is super low. They tend to be more likely to have either a non-asymptomatic um, or minimally symptomatic presentation in course of COVID-19. And I've heard many teachers talk about that fear is that them being the adults and having some increased risk, you know, relative to the students with children coming in with potentially COVID and spreading, to get, uh, spreading it to them. How do we meet the needs of the teachers with regard to getting back to the classroom? Yeah. And, and so we wanted to be respectful, of course, to the the teachers, um, but it, it is a dynamic of, um, initially it became potentially of parents and students versus the teachers. Um, and so I think now that the vaccine, that has clearly been the game changer to have all the vaccines, having them roll out, maybe not as fast as some people would like, but it's been a phenomenally successful program. Um, that really mitigates, I think, the concerns of the teachers, particularly knowing how successful the vaccines are. And I think it's important also to remember the vaccines aren't trying to say you will not got you won't get disease, but what they do say with an incredibly high level of success is that you won't get sick to the point of even having to go to the hospital. I mean, much like you're doing after the vaccine, you're having some maybe some aches or pains, 
but you don't have to go to the hospital. You're not on oxygen. And, and the main thing is we don't want to have to hospitalize you. We don't want you to certainly be on an, uh, a ventilator or have uh, pulmonary complications. And so I think giving that, that has really had buy-in now. The, the teachers now are saying, okay, with all these other guardrails in place with masking, um, <clears throat> the, the ventilation, the HVAC, uh, the screening, maintaining the bubble, I think they've really had buy-in. And certainly the, the parents are excited about it. Now, there are some who say, you know, I'm still a little bit nervous. Um, I'd prefer to stay home. And so we're still keeping the Zoom uh, option in place. But just like you said, you know, you walk by the kids' room, sometimes it's tough to maintain their engagement for six hours a day just looking at a computer screen. And so um, I think it's really essential, not only for their educational benefit, but for their social well-being to, um, to really get back to face-to-face. -to -face. I mean, heck, even you and I, right? It's great to see each other by Zoom, but I think it's a whole lot more fun to do these podcasts in person when we're sitting next to each other. And we actually did get to see each other face-to-face -face with the first return of a conference um, the it, out in Park City last week, I believe it was last week. Uh, and um, so we got to see face-to-face, -face, actually sit down and have a meal together for the first time in over a year, which was fantastic. And, and interesting, you've actually mentioned it twice, the fact I got the vaccine. So I was in the Johnson & Johnson trial and I found out yesterday that I was in the placebo arm of the trial. So they said, okay, time for your vaccine. Well, I had COVID in November um, and got the vaccine. And exactly 10 hours after getting it, I got the most shaking chills I've gotten in, that I can remember, um, you know, since being a child. And then, you know, couldn't stay warm, got in the bed. And then was about midnight, just woke up, just sweating it out, just sweat box, couldn't get comfortable. I mean, it was, it was one of the worst night sleeps in forever. In fact, while I was sitting here and you were talking, my ring, I've got one of the aura rings that I talked about actually in the talk that I did there in Park City. It actually warned me that something was wrong because my temperature was up 3.6 degrees and heart rate was up and respirations were up. And it said, something, you need to check things out, take inventory, something's not right. Yeah, I get it. Yes, 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 yes. I'm actually, I'm sweating it out right now. I think I'm on the back end of this uh, this. Uh, vaccine response, which is nice. I mean, it's it's science. I mean, and I, and I love the fact I have the opportunity. I wish I would have gotten better sleep last night, but you know, the fact that now I know that I've got the vaccine and protected, and I know for a lot of um, a lot of the public out there, you know, we're talking about teachers and and administrators and them getting the vaccine. Of course, you know, with my kids' school, there's still a lot of teachers that are kind of falling into that some of those narratives that are out there. Um, got questions about you know reproductive stability, you know, the re reproduction after getting the vaccine. And we have, you know, the potential for side effects and clots and all that other stuff. And I'm like, listen, this vaccine, no matter which one you get, is many, 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 if not hundreds or thousands of times safer than the virus itself. And just having the virus, I can tell you, it sucks. Um, is the, Yeah, yeah, well, that definitely... You know, you're knowledgeable about it, so it's got to be reassuring for you about that. Well, that you don't yeah. feel so great. Well, yeah, it, it's 10 hours. It was ready to fight. I noticed the arms starting to hurt. I was like, oh, here it comes. And then all of a sudden I started shaking, and I couldn't hardly brush my teeth. I had my contacts in, and I couldn't take them out. I had my trying to brush my teeth, and I was looking like I was having a seizure um, in front of the uh, in front of the uh, mirror. So, well, let, me, let me ask, because I have to take advantage. Yeah. You said clot. And you know, anytime you say cloud or thrombotic disorder, I'm going to jump on that. Yes. So um, I think it's really interesting with the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine that they talked about, maybe there's an increased incidence of clot. And uh, there's really no 
no signal there. Um, some of the patients did have it, but when you look at what the background incidence of um, venothromboembolic disease is, no difference with a population who got the vaccine than patients who did not. Um, and, and, you know, think about it, looking at all the other vaccines too, millions of these vaccines have been administered. And, and that's probably a little bit more of an enrollment than most of our clinical trials, right? That <laughs> might have 5,000, even 10,000 on a big trial, millions. And so um, I would use this again to underscore and ask people to be an advocate for the vaccines that they, they really are safe. And you may get a little bit of a uh, illness uh, and some side effects from the, the vaccine, it's, which are really our predicted regular body um, responses, not side effects, but they're safe and they'll prevent you from going to the hospital, from requiring oxygen, from getting intubated. Um, and if, if people want to get back to normal, I think that is just going to be a huge way to do it, albeit with still maintaining some of the other guardrails we talked about with the masking. And exactly this, it's, it's one of these things that I am very happy to deal with these symptoms, to know that me and those around me are going to be are going to be protected. You know, this is just my immune response kicking in, and you know, saying it's ready to fight. And it, it's amazing to see a lot of these narratives take off. You know, the whole idea of the um, you know impacting um, the ability to get pregnant, um, which came out of a German scientist who just kind of made a loose association because some protein on the virus kind of looks like the, a protein that's important and. Um, in pregnancy. And so I said, oh, so clearly they're related and thus took off and a big anti-vaxxer took that and ran with it. And actually there was, if you look into the details of the studies, so, so you're talking about, you know, when we're talking about with these, each of these was 20, 30, 40,000 before they even made, got their EUA. And we knew the safety, but look at it, Pfizer, they actually had more people get pregnant within the uh, treatment arm than the placebo arm. So theoretically, I mean, if you're going to make a loose association, you're going to say it could make you more fertile. Uh, yeah, more fertile. Um, and then, you know, the, the, other, the other side, you're talking about thrombotic events. When we're talking about a vaccine that is administered, we're planning to administer worldwide, but to the vast majority of our population, likely by choice, somewhere around, you know, 250 million people will likely get this vaccine here in the United States. You know, if, if the choice is 225 to 250 based on the number of people who are saying they're going to get it, you're going to have natural stuff happen. To all 250 people aren't going to have a normal week, a normal month, a normal year. Um, and so just normal stuff is going to happen. But unfortunately, with these narratives, we see a couple of things take off and they run with it. But without the context and without looking at that natural incidence within the communities and environment, and unfortunately, especially among the uh, lay public outside of the um, outside of um, the medical community, and I see it some within the medical community too. Not not much within the physician community, but some physicians, usually those that aren't really haven't really been treating face to face COVID for the last year. I uh, see very few emergency physicians that are like, nah, I'm kind of worried about it. Most of most emergency physicians were either like myself that like I want to be in the trial, or like everybody else just said, I'm going to sign up today and I want it right now. Um, but that that piece of education is going to be key in continuing to spread, you know, the factual evidence-based information on the safety and efficacy. Um, and that's actually one thing I'll be doing later today on radio is, is talking about honestly how safe and how effective these vaccines are, um, which is really a triumph for science. And um, there's no real other way out of this, considering that we're, we're susceptible again after six to eight months, you know, 
actually four to eight months or so after getting COVID, you're susceptible once again. So this thing is just going to recycle like twice a year for everybody if we don't take care of it and wipe it out. Yeah, I think you really hit on it well. The important thing messaging, um, because we're all teachers when we're seeing our patients and their families, invariably, whether it's COVID related or not, they're asking the questions. The message I think that it's important that you hit on is there's, there's association and there's causation. So there might be an association of somebody getting pregnant who had the vaccine or having a clot, but that's background noise when you're looking at millions of people. It's not to say they don't happen, they do, but it's certainly not a cause and effect. It's simply a chronologic association. And that's important to message because then I think that's gonna help people understand what's really happening and is this vaccine safe? Because if that's what somebody's main concern is, we can unequivocally say, yes, indeed, they're safe. Again, if you were to design a trial to look at safety of any given drug, how would you design a trial? Would you say, I need 5,000? You know, we're talking millions of patients who have had it. Extraordinarily safe. And this is even under an EUA application. All these people who are getting the vaccines, they're monitored in the short term for at least 15 minutes, typically. And we're getting long-term data as well from these patients. So I think the safety is unequivocally there. Um, and any quote unquote side effects or occurrences, it's really just a chronologic association. It's not a cause and effect by any means. And we see this every year with the flu vaccine. You know, everybody talks about the incidence of Guillain-Barre, which is just an autoimmune response-based illness uh, with the flu vaccine. Like, I'm not going to get it because of Guillain-Barre. Um, and actually, if you look at the natural incidence of Guillain-Barre associated with the virus itself, natural occurrence of the virus, the vaccine actually cuts it by, I think the number is like 15 or 18%. I, don't quote me on that, but, you know, a significant cut in your risk of getting it. But that, again, you mentioned that causation and correlation. So the, what we're talking about when we say the correlation and causation. Correlation, you know, just because two things seem to be running in parallel doesn't mean that one of them is the cause of the other. Um, so let's just use out here, um, every person who's involved in a car wreck is breathing oxygen. Um, and so that means that car wrecks are caused by breathing oxygen. So if you hold your breath or you let a plant drive the car, you're not going to have a car wreck just because we got to take oxygen out of the picture. And so that's just, just because two things appear to be potentially related doesn't mean that they actually are. Um, and so that's one of the things when we look at these reports and, that, and honestly with the number of people that we have, the number of folks that, that are getting vaccinated, you're going to have natural occurrence of disease, um, whatever it may be, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's diabetes, hypertension, strokes, heart attacks, death, whatever it may be, natural, the natural process, especially when our first 1As and 1Bs and 1Cs are going to be targeting elderly populations, you're going to have natural process of diseases. And so the thing is, the news cycle wants to report it and say, look at this, but without looking at, are they actually, uh, is there actually a causation relationship or is it just a natural process of, of disease and they both happen to correlate sometime around the, around a similar time frame? And so looking into these, but unfortunately investigating these takes a while. And so then by the time you report back and say, actually, none of these deaths or none of these things are actually associated at all with the vaccine, that news cycle is already over and turned over. And that is still, and it, so it just, it frustrates me to no end, you know, that, that the, and I, I work in media. But it still frustrates me to no end that like every single news source wants to report every single 
potential you know uh, correlation of the vaccine you know that that happens oh somebody somebody's right hand exploded so clearly the vaccine causes right hands to explode um, and so that's and, more exciting it is I mean that would be exciting but I mean it'd be but frightening it's a lot more fun for us to get out the message to say hey look look how dramatically effective this process of vaccine development has been and that we're able to distribute it and yeah it's it's not a utopian by any means. But still, if you consider what where we were a year ago and where we are now, did you did you think that we would have vaccines within a year? Dr. Fauci certainly didn't. He said it would be two years probably. So it's been phenomenally successful. Um, so one thing I wanted to, to circle back on is getting back to the schools, though, um, because we're just beyond the year. And I know parenthetically, the, the European Union did look at some data and they are accepting the AZ vaccine now. So they no longer put that on hold. They're going to be rolling that out. So your science has won again. So don't be frustrated. Um, but getting back to where we were a year ago, it was sort of interesting because I was looking back at the notes of our health committee. And this was back in uh, June of 2020, where we said there were a couple models about the trajectory. And so the first was going to be the epidemic reached a point where stay-at-home advisories are the only way to slow the spread and medical facilities aren't overwhelmed. Well, we all saw that, right? Because initially we didn't even have testing. We didn't even know who had it, how to characterize this disease. Um, and then our next phase was the spread of disease has decreased, a steady drop in cases over 14 days or what the transmittability rate is. We reached a peak at, I think it was 16%. Well, now we're down to about 5%, still not where we want to be, but significantly better, clearly. And then the third thing that we predicted, which was really, this is remarkably uh, right on target. It said, disease transmission is significantly reduced due to widespread availability of safe and effective vaccine and or safe, effective treatment and or herd immunity. And so again, this was something that our committee came up with back in June. And it's just, I think, been shown to be remarkably uh, accurate. And I think if we follow this third point about vaccination, um, the treatment, we don't have a treatment, but we know uh, basically how to manage these patients. Um, you know, the remdesivir, maybe it, maybe it works, not really clear for sure, hasn't shown huge survivability benefit, um, and herd immunity, and then all these risk mitigating things like, you know, masks, maybe it's a nuisance, but it does work. Um, those are going to be things that get us back to normal, and that's going to help our kids, I think, with their mind, body, and spirit. Um, to really get back to where they need to be. You know, it's, as for the masks, it's one of those things for me that it's there now. It's part of it. My, you know, all of our noses have taken a toll for it. Um, but, you know, spending days out on tracks when it's 100 and 104 degrees with a mask on, you can do that. It's all right. It's, it's going to be just fine. Um, I, I still laugh at the those that will make a scene and end up getting arrested for making a stance on masks. And it's just... That, that doesn't seem like the hill to, hill to die on to me. But, uh, you know, one thing that when our students went back to class, there was a group of parents that said, that stated, we, we just won't report. We just won't get tested because we'll say it's a cold, it's a virus, it's whatever else. We aren't going to go get tested. And so as long as we don't catch, they don't catch a fever, uh, you know, then then it's no big deal. We're just going to go because we don't want to end up in quarantine. We don't want to disrupt our entire lives. How do we deal with, in that school setting, those folks that may be COVID deniers, may downplay the severity of COVID, uh, or just want it 
want it their way. The, the, the Burger King version of, of life is I want it my way. How do we deal with that when it, with regard to a larger population such as a school and putting others at risk? Yeah, that is a challenge. And we recognize that early on that there might be some people who were very reluctant to um, really follow along because even on a good year, even pre-COVID, we were dealing with some of the issues about uh, even the regular annual influenza. We really required that unless there was a medical, uh, a true medical exemption. Um, there's also a benefit too of private versus public schools. I think public schools are more bound in a regulatory fashion than perhaps what private schools may be. And so we can set our own guardrails and enforcing perhaps a little bit differently. So what we've done, and I think it's been successful is to say, again, this was early on, we said, look, this is a new disease. This is a pandemic. And I think even the concept of a pandemic has been lost on people. You're talking about, it has to be a disease that is affecting three continents, not states, not countries, but continents. And we are still in a pandemic. And for those who think we're not, uh, I was looking at this just the other day, um, a lady came in, COVID pneumonia. You know, you look at the x-ray, that's all you have to say. If you look at that and say, is this still a thing? Is this a conspiracy? Am I putting a tube in her throat <laughs> because of some conspiracy? No, it is very much a thing still. So that's how I uh, relate to patients that it is not a conspiracy. It really is a thing. For the folks in school, you know, we look at, again, the, the benefit to the kids of being back to what normal is. And I think we will have a new normal, but how do we get there? So basically we asked the, the parents to sign an agreement. It, it wasn't a binding legal thing, but basically it's a gentleman's agreement to say, we all want the same thing by and large. We want our kids to be in a fostering environment, a loving environment that's educationally challenging and they can be with their kids, right? That's what we want. So we got that agreement and they signed off on it and basically said, yes, we acknowledge that the school is gonna do their honest best in conjunction with the health committee and, and other resources to get these kids back together. So once we had the buy-in of what our goals are, that the administration and, and that the health committee is going to move forward with, um, with honesty and, and openness and transparency and following the science, um, they bought into that. Now there are remarkably, Ryan, there's some patients who, or parents who still don't have their kids in school. My son had told me, and he's a senior in high school now, there are about maybe five to 10 kids who haven't been to school all year haven't even stepped foot on campus. And I think that that may be like the anti-vaxxers uh, for a different reason, but the same concept of you're just not gonna change their opinion, that's okay, but, but they make that decision, right? That's their decision. Um, but we have the guardrails in place so that they don't come back to school inappropriately as you're describing to infect other people. And we had actually talked about it in one of the podcasts back around six months ago, uh, I talked with a, um, trial lawyer about some of those potential risks and litigation exposure that may happen from uh, exposing folks to a known infectious agent, you know, dangerous infectious agent. So, I mean, it's similar to people knowing they have HIV or hepatitis and then spreading it without informing somebody else, you know, before beforehand. And this is can be very similar. So there is risk exposure if you if you hide the fact that you have COVID-19 and, and potentially spread it to others. We actually had here in Kentucky right now dealing with a 
nursing home where somebody came in with COVID and it spread to 40-something different uh, elderly patients and, and staff. Um, and that's, you know, we are seeing a lot of that last summer and fall, but it hasn't been that way recently. But this is, you know, that potential that it can still outbreak um, in these settings. So what are, as we uh, wrap everything up here uh, today, what are some of the take-home messages? And, and one thing that I can suggest, and I think there'll be, there'll be a lot of lay public who listen to those, this edition of the podcast, but also feel like, you know, the lion's share of the audience is still going to be emergency physicians and healthcare professionals, um, is if you're in healthcare, you've got a solid head on your shoulders about COVID-19. So definitely not a denier or a minimalist with regard to COVID, you know, don't participate at that point. Um, but if you've if you've got this decent view of COVID nineteen, the risks of COVID nineteen, and the steps necessary to get back in person, you know, participating in these committees uh, like Dr. Williams is doing to help get folks back into school. You know, my wife has been helping out some, but we have you know, several physicians on my kids' school that is that have been making sure that there is a reasonable narrative and and scientific based decision making process. Uh, based on the evidence and the shifting evidence uh, from the CDC or the shifting recommendations from the CDC and public health authorities. Um, So I I strongly encourage you to be involved with those types of things. But uh, Dr. Williams, your take-home messages for COVID-19 and the return to school. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. Um, So one, you have to get involved and um, you're talking about your kids. And so I think you want the best for your kids. The the take-home messages, I think, are these. Um, You want to maintain the, the bubble by risk mitigation and whether it's um, behavior testing, hand washing, masking, distancing, vaccination, that's huge. But for the schools, we recognize there are a, a very small group of people who are still gonna be worried. Um, Zoom is still an option for them. Um, but I think the key is return to class with full classes, allow the kids to engage, um, not just in class, but extracurricular activities. It's really essential for the kids to socialize now um, and for the future development too, right? Because it's not just what's happening now. I think it potentially could harm them, particularly in the younger school age kids. That's the group that is going to seem um, potentially really affected by this. So we want to get them back. Parents, of course, they want to get back to work. So I think our recommendations are moving forward. How do we really accomplish that goal? It's going to be number one, follow the transmission rates. Um, now it's about five to 6%. I think we'll see that dropping lower and lower as the vaccinations and other uh, issues occur albeit with the variants coming in that may adjust some things. So we still have to be cautious about that. Um, we need to balance the needs and expectations of the teachers and the students and the parents, right? We have to be respectful of group, both groups, both want I think the same outcome, but how do we get there? I think we've really found a good mix of that, of that bubble uh, by risk mitigation. And then overall, I would say you have to follow the science but it really does have to be a mind, body, spirit approach um, because those other two concepts are really important in overall development, particularly the kids and probably for us as the adults as well. So Ryan, you and your listeners here on the ASAP Frontline podcast, they'll hear it here first, that schools should be able to relax their social distancing. Teachers have been vaccinated by and large, certainly at our school it has been the case and kids are wearing masks. And as long as you do that, that six foot distancing really can be decreased safely to three feet. And by doing so, you really minimize and eliminate the physical limitations of the schools. So now you can get entire grades back together. Kids can get back together and socialize and things can start to return to normal as we work our way through this pandemic. So really good news. I look forward to the CDC making this recommendation in the near future. 
It's very impressive, you know, seeing all these processes go through. And you're absolutely right, keeping those balanced. But I think the most important, the most important goal of any of these committees and groups is what is best for our children, uh, best for students, uh, for their education, but also their you know, social development, for their interactions, relationships. Uh, we know that COVID is much more than just a virus. It's it's also the emotional and psychological tolls that have taken place the last year. And so putting that into context and understanding the plan, the best plan may not be 100% the safest plan. It may not be the perfect plan, but it's what we, the best we can do in the current situation um, for our students and children and, and those that hopefully will be taking care of us one day. And we're flexible. As Absolutely. new evidence comes up, you know, we're flexible. Yeah. At, at, and at moving and changing and shifting. And actually, when we're doing motorsports, you know, we cha- we've changed the recommendation and rules. Um, and in fact, this weekend um, in Atlanta, they're doing uh, they're going to use the COVID, uh, COVID sniffing dogs. They're going to we're going to test that out on, on Sunday. So always being flexible based on the technology and the evidence that is out there and uh, to get the best outcomes, best results, most efficiency. Uh, that's that's everything that we're trying to do. And, and the most important thing that we can do as physicians and healthcare professionals is to separate uh, separate the science and the politics and stick with the science and the evidence and make our recommendations based on that evidence, not based on you know the positions that are out there, the, the tug of war between, uh, just to keep it simple, the left and the right or whoever it may be. So Dr. Williams, how can folks get in touch with you if they have any uh, questions, comments, thoughts? Yeah, thanks so much. So you can reach me by email. It's drjmwilliams at gmail.com. And my Twitter, it's also drjm williams so thanks again ryan it's um great to see you be in touch with you at least virtually and um, again hopefully we'll be together and share a bourbon soon well we've got plenty of opportunities i think coming up as it seems like more and more of in-person meetings are going to take place especially now that uh, people have the opportunity to get the vaccine and be vaccinated and um you know it's it's hopefully my little post reaction uh the immune response is about done that I can get back to normal and just celebrate the fact that I, that now immunized. Um, so, but I really appreciate the time and appreciate the topic and the work that you're doing, not only in the emergency department, but also uh, with the, the school in which you're involved to help get students back. And as for me, you can contact me, rstanton at asep.org, rstanton at asep.org. Uh, check us out on Facebook at Everyday Men on Twitter. Um, then uh, we're ASAP Frontline on Facebook. Subscribe. Make sure you're getting every episode. Share it, if you will, please. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. after we recorded this podcast, the CDC did release recommendations on decreasing the social distancing between students and some adjustments in terms of return to school efforts.